We turn to Psalm 45. Apologies for not having this information to your bulletin clerk. I sent it to the wrong person I have been informed. We'll try to do better next Lord's Day. Just to give you a heads up, this evening's passage will be drawn from Ezekiel 37, the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Ezekiel 37, you might want to take the time to read that prior to the service this evening. This morning, Psalm 45, as I said, I'm going to consider the whole of the psalm, but with a selective view, but focusing especially on the first part of the psalm as it brings homage to the crown prince, to the one who's going to be crowned as king, prophetic, as I said, and as you know, of the coming of the great son of David, uh, the Messiah. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the thing which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously. That is, with success, if you will. Because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible, or, or if you will, we might say awful Things that fill one with awe, awful things. Thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Pause there because that verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the first chapter as proof that this Jesus Christ who is the promised Messiah, was to be the Son of God. The Jews, unbelieving Jews, challenged that, especially when their children were converted and went to Christianity. Where in the world do you, these apostles are preaching that this Jesus is the Son of God. Where do you find that in the Old Testament, that the promised Son of David is to be the Son of God? Apostles said, I'll tell you. Have you ever heard of Psalm 45? And we would say, verse 6. It's all been foretold and prophesied. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Then I'll inject something. For the sake of this great bridegroom, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord. And worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And the king's, daughters, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins of her 
virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace instead of thy fathers. Or you can read instead, in the place of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall thy people praise thee forever and ever. I said what I said concerning verse 16, instead of thy fathers, with the phrase really, in the place of thy father shall be thy children. Because, of course, when one marries, one leaves the home of father and mother and goes to the place of her husband and the focus of her attention is not the parents anymore but her home her husband and children so there is that which one has to leave behind as we will see in the second part of the sermon about a month ago I preached this text And the sermon in our Kalamazoo, to our Kalamazoo congregation on the day that the Reformed churches, at least the faithful ones, still mark as the great redemptive event of Christ's ascension, you might call Ascension Thursday. And I began my sermon with these words concerning Psalm 45, a wonderful text with which to mark the great redemptive event of Christ Jesus' ascension. That's true, but this is also true. This is a wonderful text with which to mark the glory and majesty of our Lord and Savior any given Lord's Day during the whole of the year. Not only what we call Ascension Thursday, but Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Our Lord Jesus Christ hath ascended up on high. That was some 2,000 years ago, sometime in the springtime of the year, 40 days following what we call Easter, the day of his Resurrection, And for 2,000 years, beloved, he has been riding forth with his sword upon his thigh, if you will, upon a great white steed going forth, conquering and to conquer. I lift that image not from Psalm 45 as such. You don't read of a great white steed, but go to Revelation chapter 6. And this Messiah promised, if you recall there, begins to open the seven-sealed book. And he opens the, seven, the first of the seven seals. And what comes out of that first seal of the seven-sealed book? A rider on a great white horse going forth conquering and to conquer, representing the Messiah himself with the sword of the gospel. But going forth to conquer not simply his enemies and to destroy his enemies and to cast them down, though that too the power of his kingdom over the power of darkness and of Satan, but going forth also to conquer the hearts of those 
for whom he died, those who were given to him from eternity for time to conquer their heart, which is to say our heart, so that instead of being those who are his enemies, we are made into those who are his friends and even his beloved, and we are charmed by his beauty and his grace, and we are attracted to him as our Savior and our Lord. He has conquered us, beloved, by the power of his word and of his Holy Spirit. That, too, is involved, you see, in his writing forth. Even the destruction of his enemies has to do, of course, with what attracts us to him because his enemies are our enemies and would destroy us and wipe us out and silence us and our witness and all the rest with our children so that there is no witness to truth and righteousness as we know so well in these present times, the rising of the evil one, the Antichrist with his power and his hate and animosity to all that is true and righteous and those who would represent what is true and biblical and and righteous. They shall be destroyed, beloved. They shall be destroyed, of course, by this great Messiah, this great promised king. He does that in love for us. Meantime, we must deal with these enemies, but this is the one who preserves us in our faith and in our, our witness, this one who rides forth in his majesty and, as verse 2 says, is fairer than the children of men, the fairest of 10,000, beloved. There is that lovely him, the fairest of 10,000 for my soul, I believe it goes, and it speaks of him as the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star, lifting words from the Song of Solomon, which of course is the song of love, which is also in its own way prophetic. So we take some time this morning to consider the person and the beauty of this promised Messiah who is no longer simply promised, but who now is, has come, of course, and hath ascended up on high, leaving captivity captive, and is enthroned. And from his throne on high, governs and directs all things with our salvation, ultimately, you know, in mind, to the glory of his name, but the salvation of those given to him as his bride, the whole reason for the New Testament history of the New Testament itself, if you reflect upon it. With that in mind, consider homage to the royal bridegroom. Homage to the royal bridegroom. The first point is the attractiveness of this victorious bridegroom. And three-fourths to four-fifths of the sermon will be focused on that first point with a number of subsidiary points, as will be clear as we go through the first point, the attractiveness or beauty, if you will, of the victorious bridegroom. And then briefly, the second and last point, the calling of the redeemed and chosen bride. So first, the attractiveness of this victorious bridegroom and then following, briefly consider the calling of ourselves as the redeemed and chosen members of this, of this bride. 
This is a wedding psalm, of course. And the occasion for the psalm is a royal wedding. A man who is the poet and the music director, if you will, of the royal court has been selected. That's the heading of the psalm. The chief to the chief musician upon Shoshanim. Shoshanim, which interestingly enough is a word that has to do with a lily. And maybe that was to be the the, the, the title of the, of the tune, of the, of the music. We, the, the music itself is not, of course, preserved for us, but the psalm is, which was to be sung. Notice for the sons of Korah, Mishael, a song of love. So a psalm, which itself is a word that has to do with music and even with instruments, to be pinned and then to be sung, and the occasion is this royal wedding, and this chief musician, poet, psalmist has been commissioned by the crown prince's father, who is at the present, you might say, the king, as the royal wedding approaches. We're not told exactly the name of the king, but quite likely it was David. So this in its own way is a psalm of David, not that he wrote it, but that he commissioned it to this chief musician and to the sons of that chief musician, the sons of Korah, as they are, are called, and probably for the occasion, if it was David, of the wedding of his son Solomon. And Solomon, of course, would have been a fit foreshadowing type of the great son of David, the coming of the Messiah, foreshadowing the Messiah from the point of view of Solomon's great wisdom and understanding, and as well that he was, he had architectural ability and uh, was one of the, the great uh, builders of the city of Jerusalem, strengthening its defenses, and of course, in the end, the temple itself, an architectural masterpiece. And you know of whom the temple is the great foreshadowing and the type coming from the mind, if you will, of Solomon. So a foreshadowing of the, of the Messiah, even by way of contrast. How many wives did Solomon have? I could ask children here. They could probably tell me from 300? And then concu- Really? Yeah. Really. Hardly a fit foreshadowing of the great son of David, the Messiah, who was, I'll put it, a one bride person, not multiple brides, one bride person to whom he vowed to be faithful even unto death, and he was faithful even unto death for this one bride chosen for him whom he loved and loves from the bottom of his heart. So Solomon, by way of contrast, why Solomon couldn't possibly in the end be the Fulfillment of this particular psalm and how hardly worthy of all the praise and the homage when all is said and done. But commissioned by David, probably, and it's a great honor, of course, as this poet, psalmist, musician considers the occasion, a royal wedding, which is always in a kingdom, of course, a large and important event and becomes the focus of the whole of the nation because so much has to do with what that crown prince and the bride 
produce and who they produce. It comes forth from them. It's an elaborate occasion. Even from that point of view, the psalmist would have said it was a great honor to be chosen to compose a song, a psalm for that occasion, being a royal wedding, but as well the importance of the whole nation, how important it was for the whole nation with a view to the future that there be this marriage and from this marriage come a crown prince, if you will, because if a king and his bride did not produce a crown prince, when that king would pass away in the secular history, as you know, there was bound to be a very unsettled time and ambitious men of dukes and, and generals and so on would vie for the power and the throne and there would be the threat of civil war and suffering and, and who knows what kind of impoverishment as well. So when there would be from this union these children, especially the crown prince, then there was a certain stability that was ensured for the future of the, of the kingdom and the kingdom would rejoice. And looking forward to that from, from this marriage and even the psalm, if you recall, even speaks of children coming forth from the, from the marriage. So it's a great honor and it's a great occasion and very important for the security of the, of the kingdom. And without a doubt, this psalmist who penned these words had a great affection for the crown prince himself. As I said, it was probably Solomon. And every evidence is that Solomon at his best was a charming person and not an arrogant person, but one who knew the men of people of the court and treated them almost as his own equals with consideration and, uh, and an interest. So having an affection for the king, not only David, but also for the son of David, this Solomon, he is honored. And as he says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I speak of, of that which I have made touching the king, especially the coming of the king. So he reflects upon it. He prays concerning it. And the Holy Spirit comes and plays along the strings of his heart and produces this Psalm, and he says, uh, the words just simply seem to flow from me as the Holy Spirit works through him to produce this wonderful psalm for this royal wedding occasion. But whatever might have been the earthly occasion for this psalm, of course, the Holy Spirit has a deeper purpose in the writing of this psalm, which has nothing to do merely with a marriage between an earthly prince and a chosen bride but ultimately has an eye to the coming of the great son of David, the Messiah himself, with an eye to his bride, which of course we know as the church, and especially the church, we would say, of the New Testament age. And the psalmist has to decide as he's considering the occasion where to begin the psalm, from what perspective to give honor to the crown prince and uh, to magnify this great wedding celebration. And he's moved by the spirit to begin with this bridegroom having prepared himself. He's dressed in all of his finery. He has his groomsmen at his side and he's ready to ride forth to go to where the bride has prepared herself with her bridesmaids and then to collect her, if you will, and to escort her and them to the banquet hall. And we read in the end, the banquet hall will be in the palace of the, of the king where guests are waiting already 
to welcome them in their, in their coming and to celebrate the occasion with them. And then having celebrated for a time, there will be the ceremony itself. And then following the ceremony, off on their way in the consummation of the, of the marriage and the expression of the love in its fullness. And for that, if you want to read, read the Song of Solomon, which in its own way, of course, gives expression to that love that follows the marriage of the prince with his lovely bride. So from that point of view, the psalmist begins to, to write. We know something of, of the culture back then from the parable of the ten virgins, don't we? Five wise, five foolish. The bride has prepared herself and five wise and five foolish, the ten virgins, as the bridesmaids go with the bride because the groom has come to take up to the banquet hall, but five have failed to have the necessary oil and have to go aside in the marketplace. Of course, it's closed down by then. They never enter into the, into the wedding proper in their, in their foolishness, lack of preparation. But the point is, the entourage goes as the groom collects the bride and escorts her to the, to the banquet hall. And so, so it is here, and that's the picture then of the, of the psalm itself. And then it states, the psalmist states concerning the crown prince who is to be king, thou art fairer than the children of men, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride forth because of truth and and meekness, so with thy sword upon thy, thy thigh. And as you read this, it becomes apparent that this is a psalm that revolves not about the bride. It's a psalm that revolves about the bridegroom and the beauty and the attractiveness of the bridegroom. Not so much the culture of our own day and age, of course, it's a special day for the, the bride. And those of us who got married as young men know that for the most part we just leave it to the decisions of the bride. And as she makes decisions with her, whoever she's asking, we just kind of shake our heads. Yeah, we can live with that. Yeah, let, we can, we can live, live with that. And then she comes down the, the aisle all dressed and having made herself ready and as most attractive as, as possible. And I'm not criticizing that, that's just how it happens to be. But here, it revolves about the groom, first of all. And this bride has made herself beautiful and as attractive as she can, she can with him in mind to please him. And otherwise, she's not coming down the aisle dressed in her finery and her beauty simply to impress the audience and the, and the gifts, and the guests, I should say, with what she has on and how she looks. But she has an eye, am I pleasing to the eye of the great bridegroom? And she does that, you know, without any fear because she knows she's going to a groom, a young man who will not take advantage of her in any way. She's going to give herself to a 
crown prince who delights in her, who, who loves her deeply, and whose purpose is to honor her and even to elevate her so that she, when she stands at his side, is at his status of a certain royalty and will do all that he does with her in mind and her well-being. What a wonderful young man to give oneself to who can measure up to this crown prince. But that's, of course, the, our calling as husbands and well as well because this is our Lord and Savior and his character is, of course, to be a example to our character and our calling and where we have fallen, and I recall that today is Father's Day, is it not? But also from that point of view, Husband's Day, how do we reflect him? Where do we fall short? And what is our calling in regards to follow after the example of this great bridegroom? Because if we behave this way, then we may have wives who can simply give themselves to us without fear of being taken advantage of because we have their well-being in mind, not simply ourselves, if you will, and where we have, Lord, graciously forgive. But getting back to that point, this psalm revolves about the bridegroom and how appropriate is that and how could it be any way else, beloved? Because without this bridegroom and what this bridegroom came to accomplish and did accomplish, there would be no wedding. And there would be no bride who had any beauty who has prepared herself or could prepare herself and love him and live unto him. Because the bride whom he goes to collect beloved in the end has not been a faithful bride. This bridegroom is faithful in his love. But he goes to collect a bride one who has been a spouse to him who has fallen into sin and was really ready to be, as Joseph with the Virgin Mary, to be put aside only, not privately, as Joseph fought to do with Mary, who then he finds out has been faithful to him after all, but to put this bride apart, not privately, but publicly for her sins, our sins and transgressions. But he is a bridegroom of his word who loves this bride in spite of her unfaithfulness, in spite of her, her sins. And he has come exactly to redeem her and to restore her. It's striking, you know, that in the genealogies of this promised son of David, it's, in the, it's with this genealogy that the New Testament gospel begins in Matthew, if you recall. The genealogy that says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. Son of David, that's how the New Testament begins. The son of David, who is also the son of Abraham, because to Abraham, of course, were made the promises. And then you have the genealogy. And what's striking in the genealogies, you come to verse 5, and you speak of a Solomon, not Solomon, Solomon, Begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab's in this line of the genealogies of this Messiah. Rahab the harlot. A Gentile besides. And she's brought in. And she has the honor of being one of the great, great grandmothers of the Messiah himself. Loved by the one who would become from 
certain point of view, not a, her, her own bridegroom. And in this, she represents the church. That's what I want to point out. What a what an accurate representation of the of the church and what had to be accomplished to bring this Rahab into the line of the of the covenant to be numbered with the heirs of the of the promises. And then it goes on to mention Ruth, a virtuous woman, but don't forget she was a Moabite and begins her life as an idolater. She also has to be redeemed and cleansed and and renewed. So everything has to do with this bridegroom and the work he has come come to accomplish in the interest of the redemption of his bride, the right to cleanse his bride, and then to take his bride to himself in his love and to bring forth the seed of the covenant and the church itself, herself, with his bride, if you will. Well, it's this wonderful bridegroom, beloved, who rides forth with his sword upon his thigh, and he rides forth triumphantly. But let's understand, he rides forth not simply to make conquests and to conquer as a great warrior king, as David himself was, of course, that he rides forth having already had victories and proved himself to be one who had the power of a conquering prince, if you will, mighty in warfare. Two great victories already have been accomplished before he goes to collect his bride, if you will. The one of whom this passage speaks ultimately, beloved, the Messiah, when he goes forth to collect his bride in the New Testament, has already conquered death, that great enemy, if you recall. Now, he didn't simply, he didn't simply evidence that, demonstrate that by his resurrection from the dead. He did. But he demonstrated that victory over death already in the grave, if you recall. While he's in the grave, he has given himself to death. We read that death could not touch his, I want to call it sleeping body, the sleep of death. But he was impervious to the power of death on the basis of what he had accomplished already on the cross so that when his body was put into the sepulcher beloved it wasn't you understand that death begins to work and the blood cells begin to decay and then as the blood cells begin to decay the body begins to rot and to be corrupted and have a stench that body was as Daniel in the lion's den, and the power of that ravenous beast, death, could not touch that body, that Daniel, as it were. It was kept at an abeyance. And you may be sure, beloved, on the Saturday between the Friday and the Sunday of Christ's death and resurrection, there was alarm bells going off in the corridors of hell. We have slain him. He's in the, he's in the grave but our great power, Satan, cannot touch him. He is impervious to our great power of, of death. Perhaps we have made a great mistake and taken our very defeat into our very bowels from which within he will destroy us from within. And it came to pass, didn't he? arose from the dead. He tore the bars away. Christ Jesus, this Lord, he has conquered death. And he proved that even while he was in the grave itself. 
want to quote to you what you find in the book of the, of the Acts. Acts chapter 13, when Paul is preaching concerning this Jesus, he quotes the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then as concerning that he raised him from the dead, Saul no more returned to corruption, he said, Sure mercies, where if he saith in another place, and this is Psalm 16, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. That's the prophecy. As for David, after he had served his life by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his father, he saw corruption, his body rotted away. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy, this Jesus who rose from the dead. But in the very grave itself, you understand, he showed his power over that enemy, death. And then as he arises from the death, from a certain point of view, he, he rides forth as a conquering king already, a crown prince who has a great victory under his belt. But that's not the only victory, beloved, because when Christ arises from the dead, he does not enter immediately into glory, does he? Forty days he waits, invisible to the church on earth, appearing now and again a number of times, some ten times in all, we're told. The tenth actually was to the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus later, but nine times in while he was waiting to be glorified, the ascension. And then 40 days after he has arisen from the dead and had the victory over death itself and proved it, he ascends up into heaven itself, vanishing from one realm and entering into the spiritual realm to be welcomed by the guests in heaven, if you will, the church that is triumphant from a certain point of view. But there he wages another war, if you know your holy scriptures. Psalm, uh, Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the ascension of this Christ. She brings forth a man-child, the church does, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God in his throne. This is the ascension of Christ Jesus. And the woman, the church, flees into the wilderness. And there was war in heaven. This is the ten days, beloved, between the ascension and Pentecost. Ten days between ascension and Pentecost. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon retaliated, but prevailed not. The great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil was cast out onto the earth. Now has come salvation, strength in the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. The first, this is the second great victory, you understand already, of this crown prince, Christ Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. It says, though Michael is his general, but Christ is the a great commander-in-chief, and he sends the angels against the devils who had the right to heaven to bring accusation. What is this Samson doing here? Who served his sentence? What is this adulterer doing here, this David, this murderer, and on down the line? What are they doing here? Who served their sentence? Where is thy righteousness, Lord God? Heaven wasn't perfect. Those who were there were perfect. But it wasn't perfect. Not with the accusation ringing in their ears. Messiah arises, this crown prince, he rides forth and he drives Satan and the accusers from heaven so that that is silenced because they have the right now to heaven, don't they, and the glory and the inheritance based upon the work of this great bridegroom, this lover of their, of their souls. And then, beloved, having accomplished that great victory, he pours out his Holy Spirit and he goes forth conquering and to conquer through the whole of the New 
Testament age. And the conquering and to conquer has to do with the gathering of his church and setting his own chosen bride free from the bondage and the deception from all the nations of, of the earth. And so he, he goes and he has these, has these victories. And really what this psalm is prophesying is not only the coming of this great Messiah, this great, greater son, greatest son of David, but is going forth to gather his, his church in the whole of the New Testament age and to t- take from all the nations those who have been chosen for him. And in this great work, beloved, the redeemed and renewed bride or church rejoices. They rejoice in this great king, this great Lord who is their savior. You may say, well, why do they rejoice in him? They rejoice in him, especially beloved, for three reasons, according to the psalm. This is where his beauty shines forth, his attractiveness, if you will. And I said three areas, but the first area has to do with three points itself. The first attractiveness of this great Messiah of ours to the eyes of the believer and of the church is his character. The psalm speaks of his character. Verse 4, in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. In the interest of truth, meekness, and righteousness. He rides forth in the interest of truth, meekness, and righteousness because that's his character. It has to do with truth, meekness, and righteousness. He's going to have a kingdom, beloved, that reflects his character has nothing to do with his looks as such. That's not why the church rejoices in her bridegroom and we rejoice in Christ because, well, when we lay eyes on him, he's going to be such a handsome fellow. The eyes of young ladies might be turned by the looks of a young man. and There might even be competition for the returning glance of that young man because he happens to have what society has decided are, are good looks. But if you think just marrying someone for their good looks is going to be the joy of life, you could well be rather mistaken, you know. Ever hear of a son of David called Absalom? You talk about a good-looking young man, and he knew it. Speaks of his hair and so on. And he spent quite a bit of time, I think, in front of a glass admiring himself. He was a narcissist. But he was charming. Charming is all get out. He almost stole the whole of the kingdom from his father with his, his charm. And, and one young lady, perhaps in the kingdom, wouldn't have loved to have been, been somehow romanced by this Absalom. But he was self-serving and self-centered. Take, take, take. Knew nothing about giving and true love, the love. That's that son of David. We're talking about the great son of David. And with him, beloved, it was a matter of truth. That has to, ties in with sincerity. He is the Lord of his word, you see. You know, when one gets married to a young lady, there's a vow taken. And I will love you unto death. And this crown prince, beloved, mean, meant that, didn't he? And he had even demonstrate that he, he meant that I would live, love you even unto, unto death and in sickness and in health. 
in wealth or in poverty, whatever the circumstances, I will love you and I will care for you. And I will be one who delights in you and cherishes you, beloved. In truth, he has kept his word. You can count on this one. It's part of his character, who, who he is, you see. And that ties in as well, of course, with, with some who may, who may make a certain vow, and in public they appear to be in a certain way. And when all is sudden done, in private they are entirely different. In private they are tyrannical and abusive and demeaning and belittling. But not this one, beloved. As he states in public, this is the apple of my eye. These are the people whom I, whom I love. I have betrothed her, them unto myself. He's the one who keeps his vow in truth. That has to do with his character, along with, of all things, meekness, we might, might say. What does meekness have to do with it? Well, it has to do with whom he loves, if you will, not simply the high and the mighty one who has status and give him, him more status, if you will, the one who's not worthy of him from a certain point of view, and yet he condescends, as we, as we have sung, because he's interested in, if you will, even the, the poor and the, and the outcasts and willing to identify himself with those in need. He is the king, but he's the shepherd king. He's the true son of David, the shepherd king, who was willing to be of service to those who have need. Isn't this the one beloved who got on his knees in the upper room and washed the feet of his disciples, the Lord and king? That's meekness. Willing to humble himself for the one whom he has so Love this Lord Jesus, and then to return good for evil, if we do him evil yet to return to us good, and not to re return in kind. It may be rebukes and reproofs, but still in love. That's the character, beloved, of this great bridegroom of ours that we find so attractive, if you will. And then along with that, belonging to his character has to do with his might and his power, he is the, speaks of that, his, his majesty, the sword upon his, his thigh, his arrow sharp in the heart of, of the king's enemies. And thou lovest righteousness. I should have said righteousness at this point. The character has to do with uprightness. One who keeps his, his word, as I have said. But when it comes to a king, when it comes to a king, you better have a certain righteousness. In other words, he doesn't favor those who have a certain status of wealth and nobility and everything goes their way, but when it comes to the poor and the needy, well, what do you have to offer me? Nothing you have to offer me? Well, then forget about justice. They may just take advantage of you. No, not, not this king, beloved. He rules his kingdom in righteousness, what is right. He rules his home. He rules us in a uprightness, what is right, and it is what is, is wrong, if you will, and teaches us his way. This is his character and his, in his meekness and in his truth, his sincerity, and in his righteousness, doing what is right and proper at all times. But then along with that, notice it says that there is grace that is, comes forth from his lips. Grace is poured into thy lips. And then he speaks of that grace. And grace has to do with beauty, but it has to do with good words. 
Not a demeaning, belittling Christ. He may rebuke sometimes and reprove, but it's not demeaning and belittling, beloved. He had good word. Why were so many in the nation attracted to him when he was on the earth, even the publicans and the sinners? Good words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I don't turn you away simply because you don't have status in society. Come unto me in your, in your need. I have sinned, Lord, against heaven, against earth, and against thee. And we say in repentance, and he says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Those are gracious words. And my father is your father. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, ye may be also. Grace is poured from his, his lips. Not to belittle and demean, but to encourage and to build up. And how, beloved, we need that again and again here on earth as we struggle against sin, against ourselves, and have to deal with others perhaps as well. Grace poured from his lips to encourage and to keep us going forward under his, the banner of his love. And then comes that matter of his power. Ride forth. That's also part of what attracts us to him because he's the one who has all power in the end to defend his own. To preserve, to keep, even when the enemy is very great. They may take the body, that's true, Christ says, but don't fear those who can take the body. Rather fear him who can Take thy soul, but thy soul is safe in the hands of my Father. I have bought you with a price. No one can pluck your soul from my Father's hand. You are preserved and saved for, through time and eternity. In the end, you will have the complete and final victory, and the enemy will be destroyed in the end completely, and righteousness will reign from sea to utmost sea. So we give ourselves to this great bridegroom for safety and preservation unto the day of the everlasting inheritance. That's what's so attractive concerning this one. That's his beauty, and that's why we may give ourselves to him, you see, and by, by faith and by trust. So the beauty of this crown prince who ascends up on high and then sits upon the throne of heaven as the great son of man and gathers his church into himself throughout the whole New Testament age and preserves that church so that even at this late date, his church still can be found. All the forces of evil, beloved, think of the centuries of the forces of evil that hated the truth, the Christian church, and would stamp that church out and silence her. Those kingdoms have fallen one after the other, those mighty powers. And what can still be found in the 21st century? a faithful church, still bearing witness to his name, still loved by him, still preserved, and still heading, beloved, for the glory land and the complete victory. Thanks be to this mighty bridegroom. And then, just briefly, our calling as it's laid out by this passage begins here in verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, consider... Incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Forget thine own people and thy father's house. Mention Ruth for the sake of Israel and going with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She had to turn her back on the Moabites and go to her husband's people, 
her husband had died, she'd become, of course, Boaz's bride. But for the sake of Boaz, then in Israel, to turn her back on her father's house, as in marriage, one has to leave father and mother and leave to his wife and the wife to the husband. And now the wife is under the word of the husband as long as it does not contradict the words of Christ Jesus. Because in the end, that becomes one's ultimate allegiance. Even in marriage to a, a man, to a husband, one's ultimate allegiance is not to the husband as such, but to the Christ. So that one marries a young man and takes upon herself his last name, I become one with him and belong to his house under his word and his decisions, if you will, and she consults with her as well, of course, makes good decisions. But if his decisions were to be contrary to the decisions and word of my Lord Christ, I would have to obey Christ even for my own husband. Ultimately, my name is not, if you will, Smith or Vanderweyck. Ultimately, my name is a Christian. I take his name upon myself, to him I owe my ultimate allegiance, and for his sake, I am willing to forsake all and to follow him. That's our calling. That doesn't cost us today, I guess, so much. Reproach sometimes, but it doesn't cost us all that much today, I would say, as a Christian, though it may in the future. But think of the first century, beloved. Those who were coming from Jewish homes and converted to the Christian faith and their Jewish parents saying, you traitors, you have turned your back on us. We disinherit you. We would just as soon disown you. You mean nothing to us. And that new convert would have to say, if I have to choose between you, my parents, and my former heritage, and this Christ Jesus and the Christian faith, I must choose him and suffer your whatever reproach it might be, forsaking all to follow this Christ Jesus. It may be demanded of us as well, beloved. That's to do with our love, doesn't it? And our allegiance to one who so loved us. But then also, in that connection, there is a certain submission to his word. It says here, worship thou him. That simply means bow the knee. Not simply on Sunday. That's not what it's talking about, first of all. But submitting to his word. This is one who has words of wisdom. He may teach us things, how we are to live and to walk to our own spiritual benefit. So the second calling of this bride is to listen to the words of the great bridegroom, to read his word, how we are to deport ourselves, and to show that we know his way is wisdom, and this will be a benefit not only to ourselves, but to our homes and to the body of Christ as well. So this matter of submission, in, as well as being willing to forsake all and to follow him. And then finally, beloved, there is this, but just to characterize ourselves as believers, as members of his bride and church, living with the hope, with an eye to the future. Notice, speaks here of that, with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, that you enter into the palace of the king, and in the place of thy father shall be thy children, and I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. It has to do with a hope towards the, the future, what is coming, what is promised us. To speak of that, of that hope with uplifted heads, if you will. Why do you live the way you live, turning your back on so much of the world? Because in the end, this is not our home. Christ Jesus, our Messiah, is going to return, and we have an eye for the kingdom, and we're living for that coming kingdom, and we know it's coming, and we're willing even to suffer 
many things as we wait for the coming of that kingdom and all of its glory, that hope, you see, living with that in mind and speaking of that, which has to do with living as pilgrims and strangers in a way that's separate and distinctive from the ways of the world and showing that in our, our lives. And so we live, beloved, with an eye to that great promise. And in that connection, I want to quote here towards the conclusion of the sermon from Revelation chapter 21. And I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem, picture of the church in all of her glory. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God shall be with them, and they be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The great God of heaven himself ministering to his people. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And then he said to me, John, write, for these things are true and faithful. The coming of the new Jerusalem. Beloved, you're living for that day, aren't you? To behold him who has so loved you. In the meantime, do we love him? Do we show that love? Do we show that love in the way of hearkening to his word and not ashamed of his name? I am a Christian. He has bought me with the price of his blood. And he has for me and for us an everlasting inhabitant, that heritage laid up in heaven. And for that, I live. And for that great day, I am willing to suffer all things because there is nothing in the end that can compare when all is said and done. Amen. Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for thy promises. We thank thee for the heavenly abode, the new Jerusalem that we live in this life until he returns. Keep us faithful. May we be those who marvel at his beauty, at his faithfulness to us, and are given great incentive to confess him in this life before men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.